Imagine you're behind the counter in an upscale jewelry store. Every day, your clientele includes rich businessmen buying trinkets for their wives and lovers, famous celebrities on the hunt for a little more glitz, and the occasional young couple excited to pick out an engagement ring together. Then they're the people you've been warned about, the jewel thieves. They skulk into the store, desperate to grab whatever they can and get out. Only they don't always skulk, and they hardly ever seem desperate. That's what made Diamond Doris Payne so good. She wrapped herself in the trappings of wealth and glamour, putting attendants at ease, waiting until their guard was down. By the time a velvet tray of glittering jewels was placed before her, she'd already won the game. And you, poor schmuck, you never even knew what hit you. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Doris Payne, a young girl growing up in a coal mining town who decided early on that stealing was her ticket to wealth and status. She slowly worked her way up from pilfering groceries to pocketing diamond rings, all the while dressing and acting like a wealthy married woman to put her marks at ease. This week, we'll learn how Doris elevated her scams to new heights. We'll hear about her daring jaunts to Europe, her close calls with law enforcement, and watch as her past finally catches up with her. This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. In 1957... 
27-year-old Doris Payne was just hitting her stride as a jewel thief, but she knew she needed a partner, someone who could sell what she stole and maybe help her stay out of jail. That person turned out to be Cleveland nightclub owner Harold Babe Braunfield. Right after they met, the two decided to pull a heist together, so they went to a high-end jewelry store in Philadelphia, posing as a wealthy couple. As Babe distracted the clerks, Doris swiped a diamond ring, which Babe later sold. And even though the police identified Doris and she had to report to the station, she left the same day with barely a slap on the wrist. Babe paid her bail, they kept the profits of their scam, and nobody was charged. Doris knew right then and there that Babe Bronfield would be her secret weapon. He had connections everywhere with the police, the judicial system, and the black market. But it wasn't just his connections that enthralled her. Babe was tall, handsome, and used to the finer things in life. Doris was immediately attracted. Their relationship eventually turned sexual, but not domestic. After all, Babe already had a wife named Myra, and Doris had no desire to take her place. In many ways, the two were perfect for each other. Not only was Babe a worthy lover and mentor, he was also a great accomplice. He'd called jewelry stores while she was there to keep the clerks distracted, or he'd call before Doris came in, claiming to be her lawyer, saying he'd advised her to invest in jewelry. This second idea was an important mind game the two played. Before we continue with Doris's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Doris would say later that because Babe was a white man with an authoritative air, people trusted him and, by association, her. This was an essential element of Doris's heist. Even though he wasn't even in the room, it meant that once Doris got into the shop, the clerks were more apt to relax, trust her around their jewelry, and less likely to notice when she walked away with some of it. This is a common tactic used by con artists working in teams. It's called the foot-in-the-door technique, and it was coined by psychologists Jonathan Friedman and Scott Frazier. It's based on the idea that once a person agrees to do a small favor, they'll do an even bigger one. It works like this. The first con artist is the roper. They approach the victim and make the first request, something that seems minor and innocent. This was Babe calling the jewelry store to ask the clerks to help Doris, his investor, shop for some jewelry. Then Doris would come in as the inside man to make the real request, trying on the jewelry, which would, of course, lead to her stealing it. Doris knew that when Babe paved the way for her, it was easier for her to steal. Plus, they were crazy about each other. Doris said they were like an interracial Bonnie and Clyde. But ever full of advice, Babe just had one cardinal rule. Never take anything too big, because jewelry stores would be more likely to notice and press charges. As eager as Doris was to learn, Babe was just as excited to spoil his lover. One day, he flew her to Las Vegas, first class. There, they saw the Rat Pack perform at the ritzy Sands Hotel. Though Doris was more concerned with the audience than the show, everyone was covered in expensive jewelry. 
As soon as they left, Doris told Babe she had to go back. With all the rich people walking around, Vegas seemed like the perfect place to pull off a heist. But Babe told her it wasn't a good idea. Vegas was already teeming with crooks and con artists, not to mention the mob. She'd be better off in a place where she'd be the only game in town. So at Babe's suggestion, Doris headed to Los Angeles, where she moved into a hotel near the airport, just in case she needed to make a quick getaway. She spent her days in Beverly Hills, usually making her way to steal jewelry on Rodeo Drive. Whenever Doris stole a particularly valuable diamond, which the couple called a screamer, Babe flew out from Cleveland to mark the occasion. He took Doris out on the town and she'd give him the jewel. Then once he sold it, he'd give her a third of the profits. For lesser jewels, Doris didn't use Babe at all. Soon after her move, she stole a ring at a jewelry store in Pasadena. It cost about $4,000, close to $40,000 today. It wasn't quite as expensive compared to some of her other steals, so Doris sold it herself and everything went smoothly at first. A little while later, she heard that there'd been an arrest. The police had charged another wealthy black woman with the crime, a woman named Margarita Wendell Chapman, who happened to be the ex-wife of baseball player Willie Mays. Doris knew this was a mistake, and so did Margarita. She had a solid alibi and was furious at being called a criminal. She eventually got the charges dropped and wound up suing for damages. But this meant more trouble for Doris. Now that the police had falsely and publicly accused an innocent, high-profile woman, they needed to find the real thief to save face. And sure enough, they did. In the summer of 1965, Doris was sleeping in her motel room when she was awakened by a heavy banging on her door. Men were shouting her name. Somehow the police had tracked her down and come to arrest her. They took her down to the station where she immediately called Babe, who said he'd get her a lawyer. But in the meantime, Doris just had to keep her mouth shut. Luckily, she'd already fenced the diamond, leaving the cops with no physical evidence, so she didn't confess to a thing. After a few days of interrogation, her lawyer finally showed up. With a slim case against her, Doris was released on bail, and she hurriedly left LA. But before she could get far, she was arrested again, this time by the FBI. It turned out the Bureau had been keeping abreast of Doris's movements and had assembled a thick file on her. It didn't look good, but Babe came to the rescue again. He got Doris the name of a bail bondsman and pulled strings to have her hearing moved to Beverly Hills. The court proceedings were short and Doris was released on bail again, but the courthouse was swarming with television cameras and photographers. All of a sudden, people knew who Doris was, putting her future as a jewel thief in jeopardy. When her case finally came to trial in late 1965, it was over quickly. With no physical evidence to back up the charges, the judge let Doris go. But even though she'd escaped with her freedom, she'd lost something almost as precious, her anonymity. 
So in 1966, Doris moved back to Cleveland, where she could lay low and be closer to her mother. Babe even helped her buy a house in Shaker Heights, a predominantly white neighborhood. But much to his chagrin, she insisted he keep his distance. She'd never wanted him or any other man to get too close to her. Also, she was adamant she be free to see other people. She wanted her independence at all costs. Of course, this took a toll on their relationship, and eventually the lovers started to grow apart. One night, Doris went out with a handsome drug dealer named Kenneth Tolliver. They spent their first date at a Cleveland speakeasy. Afterwards, he drove her home to Shaker Heights, but she wouldn't let him spend the night. So she said goodnight and watched him drive away. However, when Doris woke up the next morning, she was stunned to learn that Kenneth had been arrested. He'd been driving away from her house when the police pulled him over and charged him with trespassing. A local rule forbade ex-convicts from entering the neighborhood. Doris was confused. None of her neighbors had ever called the cops on Babe, who was also an ex-convict. But of course, then she realized that Babe was the one who'd reported Kenneth out of jealousy. Doris was fed up. Babe's possessiveness was a major turnoff, and she didn't want a sexual relationship with him anymore. Still, she valued their professional connection and wanted to maintain it. And although she didn't say any of this to him, Babe still felt Doris pulling away. He worried it was because he'd gained some weight over the years, so he arranged to have a tummy tuck. The operation was supposed to be simple, but Babe experienced some complications afterwards. His doctor suggested that he visit the Cleveland Clinic to be looked at, but Babe refused. Throughout this, Babe continued to call Doris to check up on her, possessively asking if she had company. Eventually, she'd had enough. One day when the phone rang, she furiously picked up and yelled that she wasn't alone. But Babe wasn't on the line. It was his wife, Myra, calling with terrible news. Babe was dead. After that, Doris felt completely empty, suddenly regretting how she'd pushed Babe away. It was only after he was gone that she was able to admit that she'd loved him more than she'd loved anyone else. Hoping to stave off her loneliness, Doris brought her 16-year-old daughter, Rhonda, home to live with her in 1968. For the next three years, she lived with her daughter, dated Kenneth Tolliver, and stayed on the straight and narrow. But by 1971, she was itching to get back to work. There was only one problem. She was a well-known criminal. Her 1965 trial had plastered her face all over the news, and she knew her job would be much harder because of that. The answer was clear. She'd need to go where law enforcement didn't have a record on her, where no one would recognize her as a jewel thief. After a little consideration, she came up with a prime target, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Monte Carlo. Up next, Diamond Doris takes her heists international. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. 
We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Now back to the story. In 1971, 41-year-old Doris Payne was eager to get back to what she loved, stealing diamonds. But she needed new stomping grounds. Her 1965 trial had made her a little too well-known in the United States, so she set her sights on Europe, specifically Monte Carlo. Besides being one of the most expensive cities in the world, it happened to be the home of the movie star Grace Kelly, someone Doris had always admired for her beauty, style, and class. It just felt right. But first, she had to make sure she could blend in easily. So she spent a few years in New York immersing herself in high fashion and lavish culture. Then, in 1974, she finally made the trip to Europe. She flew to Nice and then made her way the short distance to Monaco. Once there, she checked into the opulent Hôtel de Paris. As Doris walked through the lobby in her designer clothes, she felt the other guests looking at her like she was a movie star herself. After she checked in, a bellhop showed Doris to her room, where an advertisement for Cartier lay on the coffee table. It felt like a sign. She checked out the store's hours and saw that they were about to close for the night. Perfect. She went downstairs to call a taxi in the lobby and briefly locked eyes with a man who looked too shabby for the ritzy hotel. But as she got into her cab, she pushed the thought away, focusing on the task ahead. 
When she got to Cartier, the store was just about to close up for the evening, but the woman locking the doors let her in to browse. It's entirely possible that Doris's chic clothes fooled the attendant into thinking she must be famous, an important and wealthy customer to round out the day. Doris happily went inside, and the lady brought out some rings. She took her time admiring the glittering jewels, waiting for her moment to strike. Just then, as if on cue, another person walked into the store. As the clerk walked away to greet the new customer, Doris swiped the biggest ring on the tray. It was worth $550,000, around $3.5 million today. That's when she noticed that the customer who'd followed her into the store was the same shabby-looking man she'd seen at the hotel. It was odd to see him again so soon, and something about him made Doris uneasy. Still, she shook off the feeling and headed for the door, promising the clerk she'd be back the next day. Then she got in a taxi and headed for the airport in Nice. She didn't even stop to change her clothes. That was her first mistake. Her second was that she'd stolen such a valuable ring, breaking Babe's cardinal rule. Her third mistake was that she'd pulled the heist with only one other person in the store, someone who just might recognize her. It was a series of crucial errors Doris didn't consider until it was too late. As she waited at the airport, she saw a pair of security officers coming toward her, and she knew the jig was up. Strangely, they weren't there after a tip-off from the Cartier store. It was the U.S. Embassy's doing. Here's what happened. After Doris pocketed the ring and got into a taxi, the theft was noticed pretty quickly. Luckily, the man from Doris's hotel had definitely remembered her and was able to help in the search. Except it seems his help wasn't entirely altruistic. He was an American businessman, a co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, in fact. Apparently, he was surprised to see a black woman in such expensive surroundings. He was suspicious of her from the get-go, simply because she looked rich and wasn't white. So he called the U.S. Embassy to tip them off, and they called the airport. Now it looked like Doris was sunk. She had no accomplice she could hand the ring to, nowhere to run, and she knew a strip search was coming. Luckily, Doris was a fast thinker. When the officers insisted she take off her clothes so they could find the diamond, she pulled off a little sleight of hand. While undressing, she managed to conceal the jewel inside a tissue. After the officers checked her clothes and she got dressed again, she slipped the hidden jewel into the back of her pantyhose. Still, even with no sign of the ring, the officers weren't going to let Doris go. They led her to a holding cell to wait for the police. But she kept her cool. She innocently asked for a needle and thread. And while no one was watching, she sewed the diamond right into the hem of her suit. But diamond or no diamond, the authorities were positive that Doris was a thief and they weren't willing to let her go. So they held on to her. At first, the police took her to a hotel that overlooked the Mediterranean. It was more like a vacation than being in police custody. She was allowed to wear her own clothes and had breakfast delivered to her every morning. 
For nine long months, no one could figure out where Doris had hidden the Cartier ring. Guards suspected it was hidden somewhere on her person, but they just couldn't find it. And Doris knew it was only a matter of time until they did. She had to get out of her room and away from the guards quick. Luckily, she had a trick for just such an occasion fake an illness. She knew that if she could convincingly fake an intestinal problem, she'd likely be moved to a hospital. So during her next check-in with a woman from the U.S. Embassy, Doris went for it. She dramatically laid down, clutched her stomach as if she were in pain, and refused to eat. It worked. The woman was so worried, she arranged for Doris to go straight to a hospital. What Doris did in her jail cell could be called malingering. According to the International Classification of Diseases, malingering is the feigning or intense exaggeration of physical or psychological illness in order to escape work, avoid punishment, or achieve financial gain. Though it's not a psychological illness in itself, malingering is often associated with personality disorders such as antisocial and histrionic disorders. According to a study from the University of New Orleans, it's estimated that malingering accounts for between 20% and 50% of chronic pain financial claims. But here it was just Doris's get-out-of-jail-free card. She packed her things, including the diamond ring sewn into her clothes, and happily left the jail for the hospital. Except she was trading one confinement for another, only this new one was run by nuns, not guards. At the hospital, she was given a bed and welcomed by a kindly nurse. The woman took Doris's hand to comfort her through her supposed stomach pains. But with Doris's hand clasped in hers, she couldn't help but notice the wedding band on Doris's finger. Making small talk, the nurse said that she was married to Jesus and mused that a ring like that would prove her devotion to him. Recognizing the nun's interest in her ring, Doris took it off her finger and gave it to the nun to admire. Then, while her new friend was distracted, Doris grabbed her bag and headed to the bathroom. There, she changed into a different outfit, so she looked completely different to when she arrived at the hospital. Then she slipped out of the bathroom, passed the nun with her wedding ring, and just kept walking, right out of the hospital. Nobody even looked twice. Outside, she flagged down a passing driver and asked for a ride. Dressed in her best clothes, Doris was impossible to refuse. And just like that, she was free. In the end, she'd lost the wedding ring that was part of her married woman disguise, but it was a small price to pay for the magnificent Cartier diamond still sewn into her suit. Now all she had to do was make it out of the country, except she didn't have her passport. But Doris wasn't one to give up. She just had to make a new plan. So she called her beau, Kenneth, back in Cleveland and asked him to wire her some money, promising to pay him back tenfold. With the funds, Doris arranged for an emergency passport to be rushed to her under a fake name. So, new passport in hand and a massive diamond in her jacket, Doris crossed the border into Germany, then flew back to the United States. 
and the Monaco police had no idea she was even gone. Doris returned to the U.S. with her freedom and the spoils of her con, but just barely. After such a close call, someone else might have called it a day, but by the following year, Doris was ready for another international heist. So in September of 1975, she flew first class to Europe, intent on making the trip count. In London, she swiped three glittering pieces at Gerard. From there, she flew to Paris, where she stole a $55,000 watch from Van Cleef and Arpels. An hour and a half later, she headed for Rome and went straight to Bulgari. There, she stole a teardrop diamond ring from a display, then pretended to go to the powder room. Instead, she slipped outside onto the rainy street and hailed a cab to take her straight to the airport. By this point, she had over a million dollars worth of stolen jewelry on her. Not wanting to get accosted by airport security again, she got on the first flight out of Rome that she could, to Syria. From Syria, she flew to Iran, and then back to New York, where she sold the stolen goods on the black market. Her payday secured, Doris gathered her things and went back home. But when she got to Cleveland, there was no hero's welcome for her. Instead, Doris's mom confronted her, saying it was time for her to make a change. She wanted Doris to settle down. Marry Kenneth, she said. Get a normal job. Doris didn't like her mom's suggestion, but she decided to give it a shot. She didn't marry Kenneth, but they kept dating. And for a while, things worked well. For five years, she led a fairly normal life. But eventually, she got restless. Domesticity began to feel like a death sentence. In October 1980, Doris turned 50 years old, and it was then that she indulged in something of a midlife crisis. She yearned for her glory days of stealing jewels in Monte Carlo. Figuring there was no time like the present, she set out for Europe once more. But this time, things didn't work out quite the same way. Up next, Doris's past comes back to haunt her. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Now back to the story. When Doris Payne's mom confronted her about settling down, it was the last thing she wanted to hear. At 45, she was in the prime of her life, but after lifting a million dollars worth of jewelry throughout Europe, she figured it would be best to lay low for a bit. 
Five years later, though, she'd had enough. It was time for another adventure, and this time Doris wanted to hit another very wealthy country, Switzerland. So in October of 1980, 50-year-old Doris flew to Zurich. As soon as she arrived, she treated herself to a few drinks, except Doris didn't usually drink at all, so her memory after that got very hazy. She knew that she went to the Rolex store, where she was greeted by a woman at the door, but that was the last clear memory she had from that day. The rest was a blur of blackouts, followed by disorienting awakenings in strange places. Once the sun went down, she wound up in a nightclub in the city of Davos, where she had a few more drinks. A little tipsy, she forgot to be careful and told a coat check attendant her real name. Then she headed to the dance floor. Exactly what happened next is a little unclear, but it seems that someone recognized Doris and alerted the authorities. Before she knew it, Swiss police were at the club to arrest Doris right on the dance floor. They put her on a train to French Switzerland, leaving her in the custody of a rookie police officer who made the mistake of letting Doris use the restroom alone. When the train stopped, she jumped off and went running through a cornfield. Then she blacked out again. When Doris came to, she found herself at a train station with her luggage dressed in a new outfit and carrying a Rolex in her bag. She couldn't remember stealing the watch, nor did she know when she changed her clothes or how she got to the train station. None of it made sense. Doris felt disoriented, like she was losing her mind. She had a fleeting thought that maybe she was getting too old for this. Wanting to lay low and have her feet on solid ground once more, Doris went back to Cleveland. But the moment of calm was brief. A short time later, her mother was diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer. Luckily, Doris was able to cover the cost of the initial treatments, but it seemed her past was beginning to catch up with her. One day, an FBI agent showed up at Doris's mother's house asking for Thelma Creighton Wright, the name Doris used on her fake passport years earlier. When she heard that the authorities were on the hunt for her, Doris knew she couldn't stay in Cleveland. So she moved to Chicago with her boyfriend, Kenneth, and they stayed with Doris's friend, Shirley. Unfortunately, the renewed attention from the FBI meant Doris couldn't pull off any heists, but she needed money to pay for her mom's cancer treatments. So perhaps feeling like it was her only option, Doris joined Shirley's side hustle, scraping leftover cocaine from the insides of discarded plastic baggies. Shirley sold the cocaine to school teachers. It was Doris's first time delving into the drug trade, and it made her feel seedy. It made enough money to pay her mom's bills, but she felt like she had finally hit rock bottom. She was wrong. Three years later, Doris's mother died, and Doris was devastated. At the funeral, she stood by the casket and refused to leave. She'd spent her entire life trying to protect and provide for her mom, and now she was gone, but her memory lingered. Before Doris's mom died, she'd made her daughter promise she would finally serve time and move on with her life. 
So now, with nothing left to lose, Doris visited the Cleveland police station and turned herself in for passport fraud. She was sent to a federal prison in New York, where she served just 45 days. After her release, she spent five more years scraping Coke bags for money. Then, tragedy struck again. Doris lost her longtime lover, Kenneth, and her good friend, Shirley, to cancer as well. Stinging from the losses, Doris decided that God was punishing her for her life choices, and she wanted to strike back. So, for the next 13 years, Doris compulsively shoplifted from any jewelry store that she passed. She saw it as a kind of karmic standoff with her creator. Now, Doris wasn't stealing as an exciting career choice. She was stealing to get back at the world. And she was just as good as ever. By the end of this period of compulsive petty theft, she'd stolen more jewels than in the rest of her entire career. But her run of success couldn't last forever. In 2007, 77-year-old Doris stole a ring worth $55,000 from a jewelry store in Colorado. She was caught and brought to the nearest police station, where detectives told her she'd been identified by a man who'd seen her picture on a wanted poster in Switzerland. She might not have remembered stealing that Rolex in Zurich 20 years earlier, but others certainly had. And by now, the FBI and Interpol had a file on her that was over 20 pages long. For the Colorado theft, she spent nine days in a Denver prison, then 10 months in a halfway house. But she still wasn't done. Doris eventually moved back to Los Angeles, where she enjoyed the quiet life of a retiree during the week. But on weekends, she drove to Palm Springs and San Diego to steal. One particularly lucrative weekend, she hit up a jewelry store in Palm Desert, then stole two different pieces in San Diego. But by this stage, technology had caught up with Doris. Most jewelry stores had security cameras now, making it much easier to identify thieves after the act. Additionally, the internet made it easy for authorities to share information across the globe. So it's hardly surprising that Doris was apprehended and carted back to jail. At her trial a short time later, Doris gave the performance of a lifetime in an effort to worm her way out of punishment yet again. On the stand, she changed the subject, feigned forgetfulness, and outright dodged questions. She even tried to convince the court that it wasn't her on the security footage from the stores. At the end of it all, the judge asked Doris one last thing. Did she feel any remorse for what she did? Doris said she didn't, because she didn't know what he was talking about. It wasn't what the judge wanted to hear. In his ruling, he cited Doris's 32 aliases, 10 made-up birth dates, 11 fake social security numbers, and 9 fraudulent passports. He then sentenced her to five years in the women's prison in Chowchilla, California, without bail. But she only served 18 months and was released in 2013. 
And still, the habit formed over a lifetime proved impossible to break. Shortly after her release from jail, Doris left a Walmart in Atlanta without paying for her groceries, claiming she simply forgot. A remarkably similar scenario to her first ever grift as a teen. It seemed her journey as a thief had come back to its beginning. But this time, security guards caught Doris, and she was brought to the police one last time. In lieu of prison, a judge sentenced her to house arrest at her Atlanta penthouse. And that's where Doris Payne remains today. A criminal, yes, but also kind of a living legend. Because of her charm, her seeming lack of empathy, her multiple fake identities, and her refusal to express remorse, Dr. Rick J. Scheidt diagnosed Doris with antisocial personality disorder. In writing about her, he called Doris a catch-me-if-you-can type sociopath, someone who compulsively lies about her identity but is never outwardly cruel to anyone. Sociopath or not, it seems Doris will always be a likable trickster. During her San Diego trial, a documentary crew began following her, assembling footage for a film about her life. Contrary to what she told the judge at her 2013 trial, Doris admitted to the filmmakers that she was the woman stealing in the San Diego security footage. She laughed about how she had lied in court. The police never did find the rings she'd stolen. Diamond Doris was too smart for that. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Doris Payne, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Diamond Doris by Doris Payne extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Katie Waldron, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify. Spotify.